Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, if you're here with us last week, you know that this is the second week that we're looking at this passage as we're continuing in this series, considering the, the most excellent way, the, our calling to love, and specifically in this passage, let love be genuine. And so uh, we'll be looking at the final few verses, verses 17 through the end of the passage. Um, but before we do that, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, it is good um, to be together as your people, and uh, we remember how there is a sense that as we gather together with you, you are even more distinctly present with us, and you speak to us. You speak to us in your word as we have been hearing it. You have been speaking to us, and um, with hungry hearts, we ask that you would continue to speak, uh, that as together we reflect upon your word as I seek to help us to understand it, that your spirit would be very present, uh, enabling me to speak clearly and faithfully, and us to hear, not only with our minds, but with our hearts, uh, that together we would be made more like Christ Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so there was a movie about 20 years ago, maybe you've seen it, The Usual Suspects, and one of my favorite lines uh, from that movie was, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. I think that's probably true. One of the greatest tricks the devil has ever pulled is convincing the world that he doesn't exist. And I want to say, in addition to that, one of the greatest tricks that evil has pulled is convincing the world that it doesn't exist. Because in the last, I don't know, 100 years where we have become really objective and scientifically oriented, people have been much slower, I think, to, to speak in terms of evil. That seems almost archaic. It's, let's talk instead about psychological imbalances or, or economical conditions and, and overpopulation, and that's the more scientifically measurable way of speaking of this. But, but it seems to me that maybe even recently, in the last generation or so, we've started pulling back from that feeling that we shouldn't talk about evil. Because there's been an awareness that it's not enough just to talk about these scientifically verifiable realities 
survival of the fittest and evolution, biological disorders, psychological disorders, that there's, there's something more. It, it's not enough when we think about the Rwandan genocide that happened in the 1990s to say, well, that was a product of overpopulation and conflict management. What, what took place with those thousands of deaths was evil. It's not enough when we speak of what happened a little more than a week ago in Pittsburgh to talk just about a person who was lonely, a person who wasn't connected to society and had bad influences. The shooting that took place in that synagogue was evil. In, the, in this time where, where stories, tragic stories of sexual abuse happen again and again, it's not enough to speak about personality disorders and power imbalances. What has happened to people is evil. There are some things that we realize it's not just a brokenness that needs to be fixed. There is something moral, even spiritual, that defies just simple scientific explanation. Evil happens, and we know that at a visceral level. And that, of course, is the way that Scripture speaks of things, because God is the God of this universe, and He is good, and He makes this world good. When things oppose that good, there is this force that we are aware of, even if we do not understand, that is evil. Evil happens. Our passage, verses, starting at verse 17, acknowledges that reality when it speaks in those terms. And even more than that, it tells us that not only does evil happen, but evil happens to us. Not in the newsworthy terms that I've just been speaking about, but, but in probably smaller but yet significant ways we experience people doing evil to us, where, where something happens and it's not just something we can fix, it just feels wrong. Like maybe at work, you have a boundary line that you are not willing to cross ethically. Or, or there are ways that you seek to protect your family from your work and you are penalized for it and it is unfair and it is evil. Or maybe you have in school this, this group of people that you walk by and you know every time they are just going to pick on you and it hurts. That's evil. When a good friend of yours betrays a trust, when within your family you have someone who just truly does not understand you and is so deeply insensitive to you, you are experiencing a kind of evil. And the way you know it is because it's not just something you want to fix. There's something more deeply you want to do something about it. I, I want to make sure that we don't keep this in the abstract. I would invite you even now to think, is there a situation that you can think of where you experience evil being done to you? Or, or maybe you can't think of something directly, but there is a close loved one that you know of that you feel animosity towards someone because they are hurting that person. Or maybe you're part of a group and you feel like you are wronged. Try to get in your mind some sort of situation where you experience this reality because we all experience it. Evil doesn't just happen. Evil happens to us. And, and the truth is when we experience that, we we want to do something about it. Again, it's not just a matter of, of trying to tidy things up or fix things. Evil cries out for justice. 
I mean, that's the very core of almost who we are. Think about every superhero movie ever. It is ultimately good versus evil because in the very heart of our reality, we realize that evil needs to be triumphed over. It doesn't just need to be fixed. It needs to be beaten. And we want to beat it. We want to overcome evil. Sometimes, especially in our day, we can despair and feel like things are too big and it's impossible to do anything about it, but a part of us wants to see evil overcome. Because evil happens. It happens to us, and we want to see it overcome. And the question is how? I believe our passage actually answers that very question. What does it look like for us as God's people, the people of God, to be part of His work of overcoming evil? And and the answer comes at the very last word of our passage, the very last sentence. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, to begin with, to kind of come, you know, as we're moving towards that final destination, it starts by telling us how we shouldn't seek to overcome evil. It tells us, God tells us in His Word, that we should be very careful not to follow what our natural intuitions are, because what do we think that we should do when evil is done to us? Think about that situation that you've brought to mind. What is your natural response? It's to hit back, isn't it? If, if, you're, if your boss is being unfair, maybe you work less hard, or maybe you at least complain against him. If you have kids that are cruel to you, you think through how you can get back at them. If you have family members or friends who hurt you, maybe you say a cutting word. Our natural instinct is to hit back. And yet Scripture says that is the very response that we should be wary of, that we should avoid, because it is a trap. Verse 17, do you notice how Paul speaks of that tendency? Repay no one evil for evil. When evil is done to you, do not repay in kind. Why? Well, the very way he speaks of it answers that question. When you are doing that, you are repaying evil for evil. And when you respond to evil with evil, you are not overcoming evil. You are falling into evil's trap and allowing evil to win by doing even more evil. There are countless stories in history of this. We've already mentioned um, the Rwandan genocide, the tragedy of the the 90s. Um, If you know the story, you know how it was this uprising of the Hutu people killing hundreds of thousands of the Tutsi people. Hundreds of thousands. It's horrific. But if you know anything about it, you know that this is not something that came out of the blue. It's a larger story where even a generation earlier it was reversed, where the Tutsi people were the ones who were the elite, the ones who had the power, and the Hutus were the ones who were treated poorly, and they rise up against, and there's a back and forth. Evil is responding to evil, is responding to evil until it escalates to something of ginormous proportions, and it's terrible, and evil wins. But it's not just in, in, in those big horrible stories, we experience it in our realities, don't we? I mean, just imagine a scenario like this. Say it's Friday, and it's in the morning, and husband and wife are talking, and and the wife says, "Um, you you forgot to take out the trash yesterday. 
And the husband's like, I know, I'm sorry, but you know, I had so much work to do and it was so chaotic, I couldn't get my work done. What, are you, are you blaming me for the fact that you couldn't get work done? These are your kids as well, and if you were paying more attention to them, it wouldn't be so chaotic? Yes, but I have to work so hard because you put that addition on the house and we need to earn the money. Where do you think that conversation's gonna go? Do you think it's gonna go well in a few minutes? What's happening? It's, it's one side is hitting and the other side is hitting back and the other side is hitting back. And let me ask you, if one side finally comes up with this devastating comments where the other one is silenced, do you think both of them walk away satisfied? No, it just gets worse and worse and uglier and uglier because evil is being answered with evil and evil wins. See, the mistake we make when we're in situations like that is we feel like our opponent is the other person. We're the good guys, they're the bad guys, and we need to win. And they're thinking the same thing. And both sides are trying to win. And meanwhile, what we're doing is we're letting the real opponent evil wins. Because when we answer evil with evil, evil wins. And that is the real opponent that we're seeking to overcome. Martin Luther King Jr., understood this keenly in, in an address to uh, black Americans raising the question of as they're experiencing racism, what they should do. He, he says this, he says, the ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral begetting the very thing that it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Through violence, you may murder the liar, but you cannot murder the lie nor establish the truth. Through violence, you may murder the hater, but you do not murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Do you see how it's a trap? When evil sets a trap for us so that we feel like the right thing to do is to respond in kind, we're just letting evil win. The Bible says do not respond evil to evil with evil because evil only wins. That is not our strategy for overcoming evil. What is? Well, we've already heard at the very last verse, do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. Our strategy for overcoming evil is love. Uh, verses 17 and 18, the second half of 17 and 18, kind of underline that. When it says, replay no one evil for evil, but here's what we do instead. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Do you notice what's repeated here? On two different times it says all. You know, to do this before all, to live peaceably with all. If you were here with us last week, you remember the first half of this passage about letting love be genuine is specifically about how we relate to each other as believers. But Paul here is explicitly expanding the circle of what love looks like, not just with believers, but with all. With all, and, and that includes those people who have wronged you. That includes those people that you might consider to be enemies. Even with them, this is true for. And, and notice that these instructions to live peaceably with, to do good in the sight of, 
These are not the kinds of instructions that's basically saying, make sure you are right. Oftentimes, that's our tendency. We just want to make sure we're right, because if we're right, we can feel smug, and we can feel better than the other side, but that's actually not what the instructions are. These instructions are about relationship. Pursue a certain kind of relationship, it says. So it says, live peaceably. And to be clear, when it's speaking of peace, peace is not just the absence of obvious fighting. It's not enough if you have another person and both of you are incredibly angry with each other, but whenever you see each other, you just kind of smile and are nice to each other. That's not what he's talking about, about living peace. Peace in the Bible has the idea of harmony, has the idea of understanding, of seeking the good of the other with no animosity towards the other. That is what he is calling us to. And notice when he's saying, as far as in your power, live peaceably with all, he's not saying, if you've done something wrong against someone, make sure that you apologize. Now, that, of course, is true. But he's saying more than that. Because remember, this is the context where you have been wronged. It's not enough when we're wrong to just wait for the other person to come to us. He's saying, even in those situations where someone has done you evil, seek to be at peace with them. Now, to be clear, this doesn't mean always let the other person win, because that's not what true peace is. But it does mean beginning by taking the log out of our own eye, as Jesus says. It does begin with thinking, what ways, if any, have we wronged this other person? What are, what are ways that we can repent? Because that stands in the way of peace. And sometimes, even after we've done that, when we realize there is something that stands in the way between us and the other person where they've wronged us, and it's not just something we can let go. It is standing in the way of the relationship. It means coming to the other person gently, lovingly to have a hard conversation. To speak about this not with a desire to make them feel worse or to hurt them, but because you love them and you want them to do well and you want the relationship to succeed. Sometimes this even means bringing another person in because you can't have a conversation just one-on-one, but the goal is peace because this is how you overcome evil. Now, to be clear, there's a realism here. It says, as far as it is in your power. And and by that, Paul is acknowledging that sometimes it is not in our power to be at peace with another person. For example, if you've been sexually abused and the person refuses to acknowledge what happens and that person has not been brought to justice, I do not believe peace is possible until that changes. Or if you have sought to speak to someone and you have been as humble as you can, you've repented of what you can, but there is no movement and they continue to hurt you, you have done whatever is in your your power and it is not possible to be at peace with them. But even then, you can obey the instruction of a few verses earlier. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Even those who have wronged you who refuse to repent, you can still pray for And even as you rightly seek them being brought to justice in certain circumstances, you can also pray for their good, because this is how we overcome evil. Now, notice it's not just a call for us to live peaceably. It goes even beyond that. If we go back a verse, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought 
to do what is honorable, or it could just as easily be translated to do what is good in the sight of all. When you are wronged and evil is done to you, do good in response. And it's not just any good. Notice, it's not just something you could say, well, I did the better thing. It's actually something that is so obviously good that the other people recognize it. Do what is good in the sight of all. Something that is unmistakably kind. So that even if they don't like you, they have to recognize there was something good about that in response. And notice, it's not even just a command to do what is unmistakably good. It is, it is a command to give thought, to be preoccupied. I mean, if you really think about what it's saying, it almost seems ridiculous. You know, the, man, that, that kid keeps on picking on me. What can I do tomorrow to make his day better and make him more cheerful? My boss is so incredibly unfair and so misunderstanding I should write a card thanking him for the things that I really do like about him. I feel like my father never, ever, ever listens to me. So how can I do everything I can to make sure that he feels listened to? You see why it feels, it feels incongruous, ridiculous. And let me get back to what we were thinking about before. Think of that situation in your mind where you feel like you have been wrong. Give thought. What would it look like for you to be ridiculously kind to that person in a way that's unmistakable? This scripture says that's our strategy for overcoming evil. Now, if you're beginning to actually try to think through what it might look like with a specific situation, I wonder if some of you right now are saying, I'm not so sure about this, honestly. This, this might be something that works in kind of smaller situations, but you don't know just how deep this goes. You know, uh, a theologian, Miroslav Volf, who is Croatian, so he has experienced in his own culture some of the worst of humanity, actually raises that specific question. Uh, and he says, imagine speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burnt, and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them is that we should not retaliate. Why not? And maybe that's a question not quite as pointedly we're experiencing because the reality is evil has a way where, especially if it's pronounced, where it almost feels wrong to seek peace. Because with evil, there is a lie that we want to be made true. There is an injustice that we want to be made right. And so how in the world can things be okay if when someone does something so deeply unjust that we respond with kindness? Volf's answer is, I say that the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. 
Did you notice what verse 19 says? After explaining how we can live peaceably with all, what does it say? Does it say, beloved, never avenge yourselves because seeking to avenge yourself is wrong and it is wrong to even desire that vengeance? Now, if you look at verse 19, you realize that is not what it says at all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Do you hear that? Our desire for vindication when we're wronged, our desire for truth to come to the surface, that is a righteous desire. The thing that we need to understand is, even though that is our desire, it is not up to us to see this happen. That's God's job. I know that some of you have experienced tremendous hurt, whether it's abuse or some other kind of deep wound that has yet to ever come to light in terms of there being justice or there being truth that everyone can see, and it gnaws at you. And I want you to understand what God is saying is, that is something that matters to me and I will take care of this. And do you notice how tenderly this verse is spoken of? Beloved is how it begins. It's saying, you who are loved by God. And what Paul is saying, do you realize how much God loves you? He loves you so much that when you are wronged, when evil is done to you, He hates it. And He is angry, and he is going to do something about it. I mean, that's, that's exactly what it says, doesn't it? He says, vengeance is mine. I will take vengeance. I will repay. Now, this will mean one of two things. Either the person who has wronged you at some point will be led by the Spirit to see his wrong or her wrong, and will grieve, and will confess and will repent and entrust themselves to Jesus, and Jesus' death will take care of it. And on the last day, when you see that person, even if they have never acknowledged it beforehand because you haven't had a chance to talk to them, on that last day, they will acknowledge what is true, and you will know that what is right has taken place, and you will be satisfied. Or this person who has wronged you will, will never acknowledge it, will never repent, and on the last day, he or she will experience the terrible wrath of God. These are truths that we generally don't like because they're unpleasant, but do you not see that is what we need to be able to not be bitter? For some of us, we are so stuck in a desire that is a righteous desire for seeing truth and vindication, and what we need to understand is as much as we desire it, God desires it all the more. And he takes it from us. He says, this is not something that you should be focused on. Vindication is not something that you should be pursuing on your own because it's going to eat you up. It's going to destroy you. Evil will win. Know that I have this. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. I will take your bitterness from you if you can just trust that I have this. Our strategy, our role is not to overcome evil with vengeance. Our strategy is to overcome evil with good, with ridiculously noticeable 
good. That's, that's how it goes after verse 19. Do not repay, you know, like vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Now, this is not to be taken literally where we're saying in every bad situation, feed the person and get a sandwich. But it's speaking of feeding because feeding is something that's kind of almost universal as a sign of friendship, right? If you've moved into a new place, someone knocks on the door, oftentimes what do they bring? They bring food. If someone welcomes you to their table and invites you to eat, that is a sign of friendship. And Paul is saying when you have been wronged, pursue friendship. Give food. Welcome them to your table. Because this is how you overcome evil. How, wait, how, now how, how is it that this overcomes evil? I understand that responding to evil with evil makes things worse, but how does this overcome evil? Well, notice what he says. And this is a quote from Proverbs. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. What, what does that mean? Well, just imagine for me, with me for a moment. Um, say you are with um, a kid. Maybe it's your child, or if you don't have children, assume that you're babysitting and you're having to go grocery shopping, which is never a good thing with a young child, but you are. And so you're going grocery shopping, and every aisle, the kid is just not behaving well. They're squirming. They're saying, can I have this? Can I have that? Can I have that? They start complaining, I'm tired. And you are just losing it. And at a certain point, you do lose it. And you say, could you stop it? You're just acting so spoiled, and you're doing things that really, it, I mean, you've clearly lost self-control. And then as you, you know, kind of have your not-so-great tirade, you look beyond the child, and you see a bunch of friends from church just a little further. Friends that you really want to think highly of you, and you realize they have seen the whole thing. So let me ask, how are you feeling in that moment? How is your face feeling? It feels hot because of shame. It's, it's like someone has put burning coals on your head. That's what Paul is talking about here. He says there is something when... When we respond to evil with good, sometimes, not always, because sometimes people are hard-hearted, but sometimes that love, that good has a power to unsettle, to destabilize, so that when you respond to evil with good, they, they suddenly see things differently. They see themselves differently. They see you differently. And because they see your goodness, they realize with shame that they have not acted rightly. And things change. I mean, we know how that can work, right? Haven't you ever been in an argument where you are so intent on being right and the other person completely disarms you by af after a few minutes saying, you know what, you are so right. I, I totally blew it, and I was wrong. I, I'm really sorry. What, what do you do in that moment? I'll tell you what I do. In that moment, suddenly I go, oh my goodness, I'm being a jerk. Like you kind of like suddenly, when you're experiencing someone else being decent, and you realize you have not been, suddenly things change and, and you feel shame. Heaping coals have been heaped upon your head. Burning coals have been heaped upon your head. And in that moment, good, it, it overcomes evil. That's, that's the strategy that we're given. How do we come over, overcome evil? We overcome it with love. And you know why that's our strategy? Because that's what God has done. 
I mean, God had every right when we turned against him to just destroy us. And it wouldn't be wrong. It's not like with us where we do things are evil for him. It would be righteous. It would be just. But, you know, the Gospel of John says when Jesus came into the world, he did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. God so loved the world that he gave his son. What is he doing? He is responding to evil with good, with love. Jesus, being attacked, what does he do? He goes to the cross and says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. He is responding to our evil with his love, and in doing so, God overcomes evil. And we know that because that's what God has done with us. If you are a follower of Jesus, why is it that you are able to mean that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul and life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, and actually want to live for Him? Why is it? Is it because you go, well, it would be really wrong of me if I didn't? No, it's because you are loved. You are loved beyond what you possibly deserve, and when you see the love of God in Jesus Christ, it changes you, and it overcomes the evil within you. And that's our strategy. Because we are followers of Jesus, because we are in Christ, and His love is at work in and through us. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Brothers and sisters, followers of Jesus, this is our strategy. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I invite us, as, as we hear God's call and we see where we have been inadequate and sinned against God, I invite us to spend some time in confession. And because we cannot change on our own, to also spend time praying to God in silent prayer, and then I'll lead us in a time of response to God's Word. Would you please join with me in silent prayer? Father, having heard your word, we acknowledge in your presence um, that there are ways that we fail to love others as we should. Whether it's with our family members, our co-workers, or elsewhere, you have seen how, have we, how we have wanted to respond to evil with evil, and we have done things that we are ashamed of and that are not who we are in Christ Jesus. And Father, we ask for your forgiveness. And Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have, that, that what we have been is not what we will one day be, and that your spirit is at work changing us. And so we pray that you would continue to rework our hearts, that more and more we would have the power 
to love in response to hate, to follow the example of our Jesus in the power of Jesus, and in doing so to overcome evil with the good that you have done for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Here again, the good news of the gospel from Romans 5. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Christ, your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God.